Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Bird, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we'll be interviewing the new Chief Executive of the charity leader's body, Akivo. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a charity-led workplace scheme you'd be barking not to be interested in. As we've said, this week's interviewee is Jane Ide, who is taking over at the membership body for charity chief executives, Akivo. She's previously been very honest about the impact that leading during the pandemic had on her. I spoke to her last year for a piece about whether the charity sector was facing a leadership exodus as a result of the pressures of the pandemic. And I guess before we get into talking to Jane, I just wanted to ask you, Emily, as someone who took up a leadership role at the beginning of the pandemic, what was your experience of that? Uh, if if this was a spaghetti western rather than a charity podcast, this is obviously the point at which I would down my tumbler of whiskey and I would stare into the bottom <laughs> of the empty glass for half a minute or so before I said anything. Um, so if so, Aiden, it was fun, fun, yeah, fun times, yeah. Um, but it was really hard. It was really hard, and I had the advantage of having worked very closely with everyone on third sector for a year as the deputy editor beforehand, but. Looking back on that time, I was stepping into Andy Hillier's very sizable shoes, knowing that he was not only really trusted and respected by his team, but also by his readers, by the audience. Um, And it was my first leadership role. And within a fortnight of me getting into the post, we had hit that first COVID-19 lockdown. It, It seems like a different world now. Yeah. But there were so many challenging measures that had to be taken to preserve third sector and our fellow Haymarket brands because of the really, really extreme financial impact of cancelled events. So I got into post and our magazine was pulled out of print. Our freelance budget was frozen. The entire team was flat out just trying to cover the news cycle, which was going at a speed at which I don't think, I mean, I've never seen it at that kind of pace since. I don't know about you, Rebecca. You've obviously been on the beat a bit longer than I have. Yeah, no, I I was chatting to somebody and sort of recalling all the things that happened and sort of ticking them off and going, that was a lot. It like, was a lot. We did a lot. We were dealing with a lot. And yeah, and, and you were having to step into a leadership role in the middle of all of that. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot happening. I'm trying to make sure you were all getting through it okay as well. Well... At the same time, feeling as though I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I mean, I felt horribly, horribly out of my depth, I remember. And I was lucky because I benefited from a really supportive network, both within my own team from you guys and from our wider audience as well, who I have to say were just so generous and kind in wanting to have coffees with me and offer me advice and to chat. But it was, it was very, very hard work. And we were just a tiny team. We third sector, as always, you know, it's it's a team of three or four people that I was having to lead. So not a great big organization. And that was that was tough enough. Of course, as ever, I am taking off my hat, which in the grand tradition of the spaghetti Wetson is obviously it's a Stetson. <laughs> Uh, I am sorry for listeners. Emily has just pulled a Stetson out of nowhere, uh, recording this remotely because of train strikes. And she's just suddenly produced for the camera an actual Stetson out of nowhere, which is is a bona fide Stetson. I got it from a 
man who worked in the American military. And that's another story for a different time. But anyway, I take off my hat very literally to anybody who has steered a charity through the last two years. But I do understand why potentially we have been seeing this exodus of leaders. It's a tough gig. It's lonely at the top. Um, And I think, you know, I'm sure Jane is going to have plenty of really interesting insights to offer us on this. Uh, But it is tough. And I think it will be really interesting to see what she's going to be doing at Akivo to make sure that all these people are just supported. Yeah. And I think, I I mean, I wanted to say if you felt horribly out of your depth, you didn't show it. And actually, I don't think that's completely true. I think what what I found very impressive was that you seem very confident. You seem like you knew what you were doing, but you were also very honest about these are the bits where I don't know what I'm doing. And these are the bits where it is a bit scary and it is a bit hard. And actually sort of I think I think we are seeing more of that in the charity sector as well like leaders who are prepared to be vulnerable to be honest about yeah this is tough um and actually that doesn't make you go oh god they don't know what they're doing it makes you go okay everyone's finding this tough it's okay that I find it tough we're going to find a way through it um and I think actually you did a really good job of that thank you very much At the beginning of this month, Jane Ide took over as Chief Executive of the Charity Leaders Body Akivo. Jane was head of the local infrastructure body NAVCA between June 2017 and November 2020. Before joining Akivo, she served as the Chief Executive of Creative and Cultural Skills, a charity that works to create fair and inclusive opportunities within the creative and cultural sectors. She was also a founding co-chair of the Voluntary and Community Sector Emergencies Partnership which was set up in 2018 after the Grenfell Tower fire to provide coordination among local and national organisations responding to crises. She succeeded Vicky Browning, who stepped down at the end of May after five years in the post. Jane joins us now to chat about her plans for her role at Akivo and to talk about what she thinks the current leadership challenges are for the sector. So welcome, Jane. It's so great to have you with us today. It's brilliant to be here. Thank you, Emily. And great to see you and Rebecca again. Been a long time. It's lovely to have you. So last time you and I spoke, um, you'd taken a little bit of a sideways move, sort of away from being kind of really in the centre of charity infrastructure. And you said something at the time that really stuck with me, which was that it was kind of because of the way your career has worked out so far, you weren't necessarily concerned with whether your next career move was going to be progression, um, but more about whether it was the right move for you at the time. So given that you've now sort of made the leap back into the fray. Why was this the right time for you to take up the top job at Akiva? That's a very good question. And actually, I think that's a really interesting turn of phrase because the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is that whilst those of us that are in the infrastructure world, and I hate the hate the phrase, but it is the one that people tend to use and recognise. So that, that central world of membership bodies that we, we represent so many people across the sector. Of course, the reality is for the vast majority of our sector, they are working right in the middle of the fray, doing the things they do. And I think I think one of the things I found about stepping away from, from my previous role at NAVCA into my role at Creative and Cultural Skills was that it was a really helpful way for me to understand what it's like to actually be closer to the front line. And that was one of the things I was looking to do. Um, I've always loved working uh, with members. It's something I've done uh, for quite a long time in various contexts. But you are always conscious of the fact that they're doing the day job and you're there to support them. And that gives you a different context, I think. So it was really helpful for me. It was a really good move for me to do. Um, But I also, I think, then it helped me to reflect and helped me to really think about what I can be, how I can be most helpful in the sector, where I can have most impact. 
And actually, the truth is, I realised I really missed working with members and I really missed being in infrastructure. And I think, you know, certainly where I am now, I feel as though this is where I can best use my skills, best use my ability, best use my networks and my contacts and so on for the good of the sector as a whole, but very specifically for our members at Akivo. Um, and I think given the particular context at Akivo, we represent chief execs and people who have the role of chief exec, even if that's not their job title, to have had the experience of working in a different organisation that is that little bit close to the front line is something that I now bring into my practice and my understanding of what it's like to be a leader in the sector. And I, I hope and I really firmly believe that that will make me a better leader for them of this particular membership body. And I'm really excited to be be back in that in that environment again. Absolutely. And, and as you said there, you know, Akivo exists to support charity leaders. You have been out there spending a bit of time working on the front line yourself. And when you were talking to Rebecca for that piece in the middle of 2021, that conversation came in the context of a pattern we had noticed where we'd seen chief executives and sector leaders actually moving away from the sector or taking job breaks or moving towards more sort of portfolio careers or taking on slightly sideways moves, as you did when you became the chief executive of creative and cultural skills. Now, at the time, what we were hearing anecdotally was a lot of concern that burnout in the wake of the pandemic was going to lead to a really big exodus of talented people. And I say this very mindful of the fact that it's not exactly as though the charity environment has become less stressful one year down the line from that conversation. Do you think this is still a real concern that we should be worrying about? I think I think there's a number of different aspects to it, Emily. Now, now, I, now I reflect back on where we are, you know, halfway through 2022. I think the first thing is that there was certainly in 21, there was that sense of people, not just at leadership level, but all the way through the sector and, and through, you know, the workforce generally, um, making choices, making decisions about was this actually how they wanted to live their lives? They'd had a, a glimpse of a different world. Um, and, and that, I think, prompted a number of people to make different choices. Some of those choices were about stepping out altogether. Um, and, you know, I mean, Vicky, my predecessor here at Kivo, made her choice, you know, over a period of time that she was going to take a break. And that's what she's doing. And, um, you know, I, I really applaud anybody that feels able to do that, because I think it's really important, particularly in the leadership role, to know when it's a good time to step back. I think we also saw a number of people, as I did, moving from NAVCA to Creative and Cultural Skills, stepping into new roles in the middle of the pandemic which in itself is a whole different experience. And, you know, I learned a lot from doing that, and I'm sure many others have. And I think, you know, that that puts a different um, frame of reference around the role that you're doing and, and, you know, how you feel about your ability to do that work. We also have seen a lot of people who have worked really consistently all the way through the pandemic, doing the role that they were doing previously, who to a greater or lesser degree now, I suspect are just plain knackered. You know, they've, they've had to deal with an awful lot of stuff. There is more stuff coming over the horizon. You know, I'm hearing a lot of conversations already out and about talking to members. The consistent themes are cost of living crisis and all the impacts that has on the sector um, and recruitment. And so they're actually dealing with the challenges of recruitment and retention now, probably more... And this is this is very unscientific. This is just my my impression, but probably more than thinking now about 
what their next move is going to be or where they're going to step out. I, I, this is just pure finger in the air. But my feeling is at the moment we're starting to see the slowdown of people stepping out of the sector altogether. If they were going to make that choice, they'll have made it in the last 12, 18 months. But now the challenges really are about how do we maintain resilience? How do we maintain ability to and capacity to do the work we're here to do, particularly when the real challenges are running through the whole organisation of people, other people choosing to step away for whatever reason. And then the real difficulty, very, very, very real difficulties of recruitment. And I'm seeing that happening um, in the sort of central office type functions, you know, some of some of those areas have always been difficult, always been difficult to get, you know, really great finance people and, and really great commerce people and so on, because, you know, that's not a, um, a career path that's necessarily been very traditional in our sector. But I think also um, some of the really acute challenges that we've seen in other sectors around hospitality and particularly the care sector, obviously, many of our sector organizations many of Akivo's members are working very much in those environments and yeah hearing a lot of a lot of concern about what they do about that and what that means for the services they're and then able to provide yeah and and as you were saying kind of this is not uh, a time that has got less stressful as Emily alluded to earlier and you know as you're saying recruitment is is a big challenge what are some of the other challenges you think leaders are going to be facing at the moment um, oh, crikey. Where, where would you like me to start, Rebecca? How long have you got? Um, I mean, I think that's the thing. I was, I was, I was, I was in a conversation um, earlier this week when we were talking about, you know, some of the challenges. And, and I made the point that, you know, we feel now we look back to sort of 2017, 2018, 2019, as though those were the halcyon days when everything was so much easier. And of course, it wasn't. And none of those challenges have really gone away. Um, I think, you know, the, 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 the sharp end of it is very much, you know, and I'm going to keep saying it, it's very much about what is the, the current economic environment doing on top of where so many charities already were. And, you know, that, that, in, that classic pinch point of the increase in demand, the reduction in resource is, you know, that's not getting any easier for, for, for those organisations that work in those environments. I think beyond that, I think there is certainly a sense for me in the in the broader environment that I don't there's an element of we kind of feel or we're, we're behaving as a, as a community as a, as a um, you know as a country we're behaving as though the pand- pandemic happened and is now pretty much over and I know, you know, I've been traveling up and down to London a lot, obviously, recently, uh, you know, people are on trains are not wearing masks, people are not thinking about, you know, people are going to events perfectly happily, all of those things that even six months ago, wouldn't have been the case. But I think underneath that, there is a real sense for me, that things have not settled, people are not settled, we have been through what is globally and um universally actually quite a traumatic experience and I use that advisedly because obviously you know know, there's many different ways in which trauma can be experienced but I think you know it is that that sort of shock to the system and I think what we're seeing and certainly what I'm seeing is there's an there's an unsettledness around and that's coming up in 
things to do with team culture. It's coming up to do with people's expectations of their employees. It's coming up to do with how we think about what the work we do for our our beneficiaries and the people we're here to serve. It's coming up in the relationships with government. It's coming up in relationships generally. And I think there's a there's an underlying element for me that things are still feeling quite fractious and fragmented and there's a tension still between do we go back to old ways of doing things do we want to find new ways of doing things it all seems to become very focused on hybrid ways of working which I suspect is a proxy for a lot of other things but we haven't really dug down into what those other things might be yet and and I suspect we've got some work to do guesstimate here but I think probably in the next four, five, six, seven years, probably, before we really start to be able to understand what has really changed, what we want to change, and what hasn't changed, even if we did want it. And if you think back to early 2020, or, you know, mid 2020, and so many conversations, we're going to live differently, we're going to work differently, we're not going to drive everywhere, we're going to save the planet, it's all going to be amazing, we're going to get this great outcome from this horrible experience. Actually, that's not what's happening, because I think, you know, people are tired and stressed and pressured because of everything they've they've had to deal with and everything else on top and under those circumstances people tend to revert to the very familiar and I suspect in a few years time we'll be looking back and thinking mm, actually we kind of missed some opportunities there but actually as things settle down maybe we can maybe we can take things forward in a different way. Absolutely and I think it's totally understandable as you say that when people are exhausted, they want to go back to the old traditional models because it feels familiar, it feels reliable, it feels safe. But I've been talking to sector leaders for a piece that I'm currently working on about the cost of living crisis specifically, which is already upon us. It is happening, but it's only going to get worse this autumn. And um, one charity leader that I spoke to made this really interesting point where he said, we, we learned some incredible things from the pandemic but i think there is a problem whereby people treated it or have now reframed it in their heads as a short-term crisis management response in fact we need to be looking at this as, as a beginning of a we need to be looking at this as the beginning of a paradigm shift the pandemic was the first in a series of rolling crises which are now falling like dominoes towards us so we have the cost of living crisis coming but when if that resolves itself, we're then going to have a climate emergency to deal with. We have a massive growing refugee crisis all over the world. We have people being displaced. There is going to be a lot more coming. Now, of course, nobody wants to think about that right now. I heard a, a piece of research the other day that says no one's listening to the news anymore because we're all so burned out. We're so tapped out from the bad news. However, if we don't start addressing this now, and contributing to that paradigm shift, then I think we will be dealing with far bigger problems down the line. Yes. Given that, sorry, go ahead, Jane, you were going to say something there. <laughs> well, no, all I was going to say was, you know, your, your listeners won't be able to see this, but I am nodding vigorously. <laughs> because I, yeah. yeah, completely, yes. So given that leaders are ultimately the ones who have to go out there and make really ambitious choices to start doing things differently, to be changing their their cultures. Um, or, you know, I, I personally feel that that is something that good leaders should be baking into what they do. Um, how do you feel that offering the right support for leaders in, in doing this then helps to trickle down into supporting the rest of the sector, the people in their organisations and the wider people working 
in voluntary and not-for-profits? That's that's a really good question, Emma, because obviously that is the absolute core and, and the heart of what Akiva's here to do. And I suppose the first thing is, if we don't, then it can't, you know, and, and by definition, if we don't support our leaders and help them navigate these really difficult situations, then they are not going to be in any position to to help their own organisations thrive and address these challenges and so on. The reality is, and I was thinking as you were you were talking about, you know, these 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 paradigm shift and and the, the nom- domino effect of things sort of coming at us. The difficulty, I think, of course, is that they're not all happening in sequence. They're happening in parallel, and we can't afford to be, you know, waiting. We can't afford to put one thing off while we deal with the other. Life life isn't like that. But I think certainly. Um, you know, I've, I've been at Akivo five, six weeks now. What I'm already very conscious of and I'm conscious of anyway, as having been a member previously, is that support that we give to our members is the thing that we can do to help them be resilient, to help them think differently, to help them think through the issues that they're facing. Our strap line, I've got to get it in there, obviously, but our strap line is, is <laughs> Imagine, Inspire, Improve. And I think those three things are, are part of the, the job description for any leader, any chief executive. I had a really interesting conversation with one of our members earlier this week. He's the chief executive of a very large organisation. He doesn't really need us to give him support on things like governance or how to you know, do risk, risk management and things like that. Whereas many of our smaller or leaders of small organisations absolutely value that. But what he's looking for from us is the opportunity to bounce things around with his peers, with with other leaders from all sorts of different contexts to say, well, we've got this problem about recruitment or we've got this problem about how do we actually keep diversity on the front foot? How do we, what do we do about climate change? We're not an environmental charity. What do we do about that? To have that opportunity to bounce those things around with others and generate ideas and be inspired and find ways to imagine the world differently and to to work out how you improve what you've got. And I think that's really key. And I think then we, as an organisation, as a charity ourselves at Akivo, we know we can't control or manage or measure or or drive the impact that then has for our members' organisations. We have to make an educated guess that that will help and that will make a difference. And and I think the feedback we get is that it does. interesting to get feedback from 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 people who work in the sector actually I guess to sort of say you know do you see the differences mate do you feel it um but I think that's the space we have to work in we have to do our part and I think the other thing as well is there's something really key for me about we're not the only infrastructure body in the game we have a number of colleagues and peers and collaborative partners across the sector who who are each doing their part whether it's CFG doing the work of inspiring and supporting the finance managers or whether it's charity comms doing the same thing with the comms teams or, or, you know, any of the others that are working so hard. And the more we can do together, the more we can build that picture up and help our sector to, to do the work it has to do. Yeah, I think that's so interesting what you're saying about that sort of space for kind of imagination and planning and sort of just thinking, because that was something that I think a few leaders said to me just disappeared during the pandemic, that when you're handling a crisis, you don't have that time to stop and reflect and think, okay, 
what could we be doing better what if we did this um yeah i think that was something that sort of really really vanished and i think a lot of people value having that space and actually it stops it stops things like burnout well exactly and it is which kind of brings us right back to the the other conversation i guess and 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 it is a really difficult thing to carve out that time i know it myself as a leader and and you know i'm on a bit of a mission to keep reminding our members close down your laptop at the end of you know friday afternoon don't work over the weekends don't be working late into night because that way madness lies you know you you just can't you cannot maintain that sort of um you can't sustain that level of activity and still do your job but it is incredibly hard and i think one of the key things i'm thinking about akivo here in my role at akivo is how we can also think about supporting the next generation of chief execs that's really crucial for all sorts of reasons and we can come back to that perhaps in a moment but but i think one of the elements of that is the better able the next generation of leaders are to support their current chief execs in order to enable those chief execs to have more time to think to have more time to reflect or have more time to step back and not be constantly caught up in the weeds of you know where are we at with this problem or that problem or whatever it might be the better chance we have of those organizations really being able to thrive but it's a it's a really difficult challenge particularly for the smaller organizations where you just don't have that capacity where you just don't have anybody else to do it and i know from my time at navca you know it was that classic um issue for small charities you are chief executive and and you clean up the toilets and you you know take out the bins there's no there's no standing on status in those sorts of environments and and it's very difficult to have that space to think but that's what we have to try and help people to do and, and to give them that time in their diary even if it's just half an hour just to stop think reflect you know and 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 consider what they might want to be thinking about differently yeah absolutely um and i mean sort of thinking about sort of how things the sector does need to do differently kind of picking up on that in the past week we've had more stories that sort of around racism and other forms of discriminatory bullying in the sector it does seem at this point that it's pretty rife in various organizations what role can and should akivo play in helping the sector to tackle this issue do you think it's a huge challenge, and that's a big question. Um, I think we have a strong history um, of finding ways to reflect back to the sector what is actually happening. So the, the, the Home Truths report, I think, for an, as one example, um, the work we've done on bullying within the sector as well, uh, and, and the, you know, in a slightly different context, the report we did on hidden leaders around disability. Um, I think all of those are really valuable and important pieces of work that we sh- we need to keep doing because there is that simple fact that if you don't actually have the data, if you don't have the reports, if you don't have the case studies, if you don't hear the voices of people talking about what the reality is, you don't know that, you know, or, or even if you do know it's not going to come high on your agenda, we have to find, we have to continue to make it um, something that we expect our leaders to think about. I think then it really is about how do we help our members and the leaders of the sector more generally, who may or may not be our members, to carve out that space to think about this. Because my experience is that with, you know, in in more than general terms, the leaders I know, the people I've met and talked with all the, over all the time I've been in the sector, they want to get this right. They really want to get this right. 
and there's lots of things that get in the way of that. Partly it's about fear and the fear of getting it wrong, which of course is a, is a, a big challenge, particularly if you're coming from a privileged position. Um, and knowing how to best navigate that. I think partly it's about knowing what actually to do. And in a way, I think this is an area where there is so much emerging good practice. um, And it's fantastic to see that, but it's actually quite confusing in a way because there is so much going on and we're not, again, we're not in a place yet. Um, And whether we will ever be or whether I'd want us to be, I'm not sure, but but we're not in a place where you can pick up the one book that says this is how you do this stuff. Um, so there's a lot to take in and there's a lot to to think about. And and I suppose the third thing is inevitably the competing priorities because, and, and this was a point I was going to make when you were talking earlier, Emily, I think about, um, you know, the, the sort of the pressures that, that people have and how you actually, how we actually help people work through them and, and that, you know, that paradigm shift. The big danger, and it is very real and it's very recognisable, is that when people are under such pressure about their funding or their resourcing or whether they can actually deliver the things that they're there to deliver as 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 a charity, that becomes the thing that takes up all their thinking time. It's the default place because you have to function, you have to deliver, you have to be able to do all of these things. And I think a big part of our role at Akivo, along with many, many other voices, is to keep saying, thinking about diversity and inclusion, thinking about safe cultures, thinking about all the elements that that come around all of that, is not an add-on. It's not an extra. It's not a nice to have. It's not the thing that we do after we've dealt with our funding or our resourcing or the climate crisis or whatever it is. It's it's absolutely fundamental to finding the answers to those things Um, and it's fundamental to the way we work but you know actually doing that and keeping reflecting that back to people is a big part of what we have to do at Keeper it's what we're part of what we're here to do Um, and it's not a challenge that's going to go away anytime soon I suspect but it also has lots of exciting opportunities you know and 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 I, I am really excited to think that I hope one day I will be able to look back at my time in the sector um, and see how far we've come on all of these things and see that we are different and we are acting differently, we're thinking differently, we're behaving differently, and we look different to the way we do right now. Absolutely. And you are, of course, right at the beginning of a new journey uh, in your career in the sector. Um, so you're starting out at Akivo now. Um, when your predecessor, Vicky Browning, announced her plans to step down, she said that she believed she has succeeded in her aims to transform the organisation, to grow its membership, restore its reputation and bring financial stability. Earlier, you were talking about how important it was to be growing and nurturing younger chief executives. But tell us a little bit more about what your vision is. So what is your plan? for taking Akivo forward as an organisation? Well, I think the first thing is, um, and I've said this all the way through the process and I've said this to the team as I started and, 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 and to many others, the first thing is, and this sounds a bit silly, but don't break anything. Because actually, <laughs> I think um, one of the things about coming into a role as the new chief exec is, is you have to judge how much of a splash you need to make. Sometimes... It is the job to go in and be thrown in like a brick into a 
pond and create a massive splash and change lots of things because that's what needs doing. And I've certainly been in many of those sort of transformational roles as a chief exec and, and in other roles in my career. But you're right, Vicky absolutely has done a fantastic job of putting Akiva on a really sound footing. It's it's in a great place. Some, somebody was talking to me yesterday about, um, you know, for any chief exec in the charity sector, you've got three things to think about. You've got to think about your board. You've got to think about your staff. You've got to think about your funding. Those three things are what, you know, either makes an organisation fly or not. And most of the time, if you're lucky, you've got two out of the three. And if you're really unlucky, you've only got one out of the three. And then you've got, you know, what where the challenges are you've got to resolve. I have been very fortunate to inherit an organisation that is in a sound place um, and a really strong place, I think, across all those or three of those metrics. And it's really important as a membership body that we maintain the quality that we're providing for our members. We, we know how much our members value what we do for them. And without our members, we are nothing. So that's really, really important. So I don't take that lightly. Um, not disrupting, not breaking, not changing things that don't need to be changed because it's it's really important. But absolutely, that has to be done without getting complacent. And, you know, this is a new phase. This is a new era. It's a new era for Akiva by definition, but it's also a new era for the sector, all the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, the post-pandemic world and what that looks like and, and how we navigate it is really important. So I think there are a couple of things that are really front of my mind firstly is and I have to say this because I'm a proud adopted northerner I don't live in London I'm not based in London London has been very much a focal point for Akivo just by definition because that's where the office has been based it's where many of the staff have been based and it's where there is a, a natural bias in the sector to where chief execs tend to be in inverted commas based and I say that advisedly because I think that's that's not necessarily effective where they actually are but I do think there's more we can do and and I want to do to help or make sure that leaders of charities who are outside of that space and also those who are in perhaps smaller organizations see themselves represented in the membership and feel that it's a place for them. You know, I don't want any chief executive to look at Akiva and think, well, they're doing all that really great stuff, but it's not for me. They wouldn't want me there. That's that's not what we're about. So I think that's a really important part. I think there's also, um, for me, a huge piece of work for us to be thinking about which is about supporting that next generation. And I think you're right, Emily, partly it's younger chief execs, people who are already in those roles now. But I also think there's a there's a really exciting and a really necessary piece for us to think about, about the, the next generation or the chief execs in waiting, I suppose I would, I, would, I would call them. We do have an associate membership at the moment, but I think there is more we should be thinking about in terms of what do we offer those who are, coming up through the, the sector now, who probably are already thinking that their next role might be as a chief exec or the next role after that. That's where they see their career path going. And how we support them to, to do that and be prepared for that role effectively for two reasons. One, so that we don't then lose them when they get there and realise or discover that it's actually not quite what they thought it was. And I think that's important. But really crucially, because I think it's, it's time for us as a sector to really focus on that if we're really going to change the profile of leadership. Um, 
there is only so much we can ever do to enable the current generation of leaders to work on the diversity agenda and the inclusion agenda if we don't start to really break through that concrete ceiling or help others to break through that concrete ceiling that I've heard so many people describe, we're not going to get a, a different profile at the most senior level. That for me is is the thing that I am most thinking about in terms of this role as I take it on at this point. I had a conversation with Rosie Ferguson, my chair, our first one-to-one, um, which typically Rosie was very much about, okay, so you know, when you leave, you know, what, what do you want to leave behind? Where, where, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? And I love that because, you know, I think that's really key for any leaders to be thinking about how they hand on the baton. And for me, if I have one wish, I'm not sure on YouTube execs get any wishes, but if we do, you know, my, my one key wish would be that when I step down, I hand over to my successor an organisation that is in just as good health as the one that I've inherited with a really great reputation and a fantastic membership um, network but that can say very proudly we have pulled some big levers and we've made some real visible tangible perhaps is a better word to change in the profile of the leadership demographic for our sector well thank you so much jane for talking to us today it's been brilliant to have you on Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. So the first story I've got is a lovely one from Northern Ireland. So Kathleen Hammond runs a care agency in County Tyrone. And last week was the Loneliness Awareness Week. And the British Red Cross has warned that eight out of 10 people believe loneliness is getting worse in Northern Ireland following the pandemic. And obviously, older people, people who need care and support tend to be in a demographic that's quite vulnerable to this. So Kathleen responded by launching an Adopt a Grandparent scheme, where she asked people to volunteer to write to older people who have no family around them in a bid to tackle this rising loneliness problem. She had a thousand responses in the first 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, right. So that is a lot of emails, letters, however people were applying for it. That is a lot. Uh, And it's actually gone up. Um, So like I said, this started last week. The total is now around 2,000 applications from all over the island of Ireland. And uh, she's had to bring on four new team members to deal with the demand. Um, And I just, what I loved about this story is that it's such a simple idea and it has very clearly really caught people's imagination um, and hopefully will contribute to solving a real problem. So Good luck to Kathleen sorting through all those applications. Amazing idea. Best of luck to you. And props to all those people who want to help older people in their communities, you know, be less lonely. Yeah. Deal with those loneliness issues. So good for you as well. Absolutely. Uh, And then next up, uh, we've got the Dogs Trust is urging businesses to open a dialogue about bringing dogs to work. Uh, So the Dogs Uh Trust, yes, Um, hence the barking pun. Uh, The Dogs Trust National Dog Survey, which had more than 350,000 respondents, found that 55,000 of those respondents said, ideally, they would like to take their dogs to work, but their employers wouldn't allow it. In response to this research, the UK's largest dog welfare charity has created the Dog Friendly Workplaces Programme for organisations that want to support their dog owning employees and offer an additional incentive to prospective employees in the current job market. 
So they say that dog-friendly workplaces will help to ensure dog welfare by supporting organisations to create a dog-friendly environment, which will benefit not only staff with dogs, but also clients, customers and visitors. Um, so the programme is going to offer like regular live webinars, training, tips for dogs going into workplaces and you know making sure that it's a positive experience for dogs, their owners and the owner's colleagues. Press release just said their colleagues. Possibly it's the dog. <laughs> uh, this Friday is also Bring Your Dog to Work Day. And the Dogs Trust is saying that businesses should see it as an opportunity to open an honest and frank dialogue in their workplace about the benefits, challenges and feasibility of bringing dogs to work. And honestly, the reason this is here, it is a positive news story. But honestly, I'm flagging this out of pure selfishness. Uh, I myself do not have a dog, uh, but I believe my life would be vastly improved if I could ac- have access to other people's dogs uh, in the workplace. Um, so uh, Emily do you fancy bringing Panda and Otto into work? I I cannot emphasise enough how much Panda would trash our workplace beyond any recognition she is not, (laughs) bless her I love her dearly but she is not a workplace friendly dog Um, unfortunately she is as strong and powerful as a tank and she requires constant (laughs) attention and if she doesn't get it she will bark at a pitch that can shatter glass. So given the amount of glass in our large open plan office, I'm afraid Panda is is probably not a viable option. Now, Otto, on the other hand, would be a very good office dog because he will just lie down and chill at your feet and occasionally, you know, sigh deeply, which is uh, both a very mournful but a very soothing sound. So I can definitely look into bringing (laughs) Otto, but believe me, you don't want Panda in your workplace. Um, however, you know, I am a big advocate for dogs as a dog lover myself. You know, we also know that science proves that they are good for you. We have many research studies that have shown that petting a dog or a cat for just 10 minutes does reduce your cortisol levels. So it eases your stress. And there was one study done in America that found 84% of post-traumatic stress disorder patients who were paired with a service dog reported a significant reduction in symptoms and 40% were able to decrease their medication. So there are a lot of surveys out there that show they are great. So I do advocate for bringing dogs into the workplace. I think they're quite magical animals and there's no doubt that all of us could do with a little less stress in our lives right now. But it is also important to be sensitive to people who don't like or are not comfortable with dogs and, of course, to people who are allergic because uh, as a hay fever sufferer, I'm annoying everybody in the (laughs) office at the moment with my constant sneezing. So (laughs) I think it's a great initiative. I hope the Dogs Trust gets lots of success with it, but let's just all be sensitive at the same time. That is absolutely fair enough. We may have to put that plan on pause then for a bit. Oh... (laughs) I'm really, I am sorry about that one. I am. Um, It's a shaggy dog story. (laughs) We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Jane Ide, and of course, our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.